In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Reaffirming again in the third verse that he is before creation, because nothing was made without him, which then he must predate creation. John. The last writer, the others are gone. He's the last living eyewitness. He had no doubt zeal as a young man. He became the disciple of John the Baptist. No doubt he had helped in baptizing thousands as the multitudes came to John from every direction. He had been there. And no doubt, here, an aged man, he is remembering the day that John the Baptist pointed his finger and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And he begins then to follow his master. Seventy years minimum have gone by. But the word, the teachings, the miracles, the passion of Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, the day of Pentecost, the church, the revelation on Patmos, now at Ephesus, this old man is remembering these things as the spirit ignites these things like they happened yesterday. John was one of, we know, at least 500 witnesses that Paul speaks about, that we hear about. And of that 500, he was one of 120 that had been in the upper room when the Holy Spirit fell and, as it were, cloven tongues of fire and a rushing mighty wind were there. He was part of a smaller group of the 70 that Jesus had sent out and given authority over unclean spirits and diseases and so forth. And he was part of a smaller group of the 12 that the Lord prayed all night and chose out of the multitudes in Israel. And he was part of a smaller group. Peter, James, and John, who were taken in by Jesus to the bedroom in Jairus' house where his dead daughter lay on the bed and saw Jesus say, Talitha kumai, and arise, she raised from the dead. They were part, he was part of a smaller group, the same three, Peter, James, and John, that went to the Mount of Transfiguration that saw Jesus with Moses and Elijah speaking about what he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. He was part of the three that went further with Jesus in Gethsemane than the others and heard him cry, Abba, 
father. And he appears to be, by our records, the only apostle, one out of the three, that stood at the cross and watched the crucifixion and saw Jesus take his last breath. All these memories now, ignited by the Holy Spirit, who becomes the guide to his quill as he begins to write this gospel that we have. And there's, you know, John is a good Jewish boy. So he's not taking anything for granted as he says that Jesus was the word of God. Listen, he understands, he tells us here, he's speaking about deity, which was blasphemous to any Jew. The Jews hated Jesus because he said those things. John, when he tells us Jesus is the word, because we hear from many quote-unquote scholars that the idea of the word was made prominent in Ephesus, where he is as he's writing, and that it comes from Philo and Greek philosophers, and it means the origin, it means to bring into existence, it means that which holds everything together. I'm sure there's some of that in Greek philosophy, but this is a Jewish boy. And he knows the Old Testament many times speaks of the word of God. He is a Jewish boy. He knows that there is the angel of the Lord's presence in the Old Testament. He knows that in Proverbs, wisdom itself is personified as one that was there from the beginning when the angel sung that first morning, that this wisdom was already there. And John then seeks to bring all of that into this person and put him before us and it's different for him look John is Jesus earthly cousin Salome and Mary the mother of our Lord were sisters and for three and a half years when Jesus called him he's the first and the last of the apostles he was probably the closest one in some ways to Jesus He's the one that leaned upon his breast. He was the one that knew Jesus, no doubt unlike any other. He's the one, instead of naming himself in this record we're going to study, he calls himself several times the disciple that Jesus loved. He's very cognizant of that fact. He is old. Capital O, capital L, capital D. Average life expectancy in this culture, first century, is 35 to 40. Unusually, you live 41 to 45, you were old. John is 90 years old. Yeah. What's average life expectancy today? 80 Imagine sitting down with a 160-year-old, right? John's double the life expectancy. And he uses a vocabulary of 600 words. He's 160, and he uses a vocabulary of a kindergartner or first grader. We learn average 100 words a year. He presents this whole record in 600 words, And because it is so simple, every new believer and every child does well with the Gospel of John. 
But because it is so profound and so deep, it stumbles every philosopher and quote-unquote theologian because of the tenses that he uses and the things that he says. They're immeasurable. He writes here, he tells us, with a purpose. He tells us he could have written many other things. He says there's also many other things which Jesus did the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose, that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. But he tells us why he did write. He says many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written. Here's his purpose. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you should have life through his name. He says, the reason I've written this is so people can come to a verdict. You have to make a decision, he says. I've written so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that you might have life because you believe in his name. That's your decision. You hear these things that he says. We'll go through these chapters. And he says the purpose of this is that you have to come to a verdict. You have to listen to what's put forth. You have to look at this one, the word of God, who is brought before us in so many different ways. You have to keep your mind and your heart on this one individual who's eternal, who stands on the page before us. You know... He's, he was there at Pentecost. He heard the mighty rushing wind. He sees the church grow from, from 120 to 3,000 in one day. And by this time, all the New Testament writings are in circulation except his own writings. Uh, I personally believe that when he returns from Patmos, I think it may have been Irenaeus that says that, he's alone at Ephesus, this lonely old man, and it, the Holy Spirit, and coaxed by those around him, sought to write this record of his master, of his master. History tells us that there, this 90 years ancient man, that they would carry him in. He couldn't walk anymore, and they would put him before the church in Ephesus. They called him Brontophonos, thunder voice. We imagine John as this meek and quiet. This is a guy that wanted to call down fire and burn up the Samaritans. Brontophonos, he becomes the apostle of love, and they said they would carry him in in front of the church and set him down, and he would look at the church, this ancient man, and he would say, little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. And I believe John would say the same thing to us today. In our nation, with all the racial tensions, all the political tensions, the medical tensions, the vaxxers and the unvaxxers, all of the differences, all of the hatred that's being stirred. And Jesus said, and John wrote it, by the, by the love you have, all men will know that you're my disciples. And I believe that if John was carried here and looked at us at Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia, this morning, the Holy Spirit would do the same thing through him 
Brontophonos, thunder voice. Little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. Love one another. It's the light that we're to shine. It sets us apart from everything that goes on out there. We are a society unlike any other. Little children love one another. John Phillips writes this interesting picture of John in this gospel. He says, by the time John took up his pen, his quill, to write his gospel, his epistles and the apocalypse, the first century of the Christian era was about to close. As an old man, he looked out on a world much different from the one he had known as a boy. Jerusalem was no more. The Jewish people had been uprooted and scattered to the ends of the earth. The church was spreading over the entire world, too, and had already endured terrible persecutions under Nero and Domitian. The roots of apostasy were everywhere. Gnosticism threatened to change Christianity into something unrecognizable. Peter was gone. James was gone. The Apostle Paul was gone. And John is writing to a third generation of Christians. By its third generation, a movement stands in desperate need of revival or else it will disappear altogether or linger on as a ghost of its former self. In the first generation, truth is conviction. Those who hold a conviction hold it dearly. They do not know the meaning of compromise. They are willing to die for what they believe to be true. In the second generation, conviction becomes belief. Sons will hold the truths that they have been taught by their fathers and defend their beliefs in discussion and debate. The keen edge of conviction, however, has been blunted, and adherence to a body of beliefs inherited from the fathers is not so much a passion as a position and a persuasion. But in the third generation, the belief becomes an opinion. By then, some of the members of the movement are willing to trade in their options for anything that promises to be fair exchange. They feel it is time for a change and they start talking about renewal, but they look to the world for fresh ideas. John wrote for just such a third generation. He wrote with a sense of urgency. He did not write, as did the synoptists, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, from the viewpoint of an infant church, he wrote from the standpoint of an infirm church, one that was in dire peril from persecution without and subversion within. John, this old man, writing this gospel to us. It differs from Matthew, Mark, and look. Matthew writes to the Jew. Fulfilled is his favorite phrase throughout his gospel proving that Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah. So he gives us a genealogy that begins with Abraham. It's fitting. Mark writes about Jesus, the servant. And it, I love Mark, the way it moves. And But there's no genealogy because in that culture, a servant or slave had no genealogy. 
Luke writes about Jesus the man. He's amazed of the incarnation. He ends his gospel with Jesus being filled with the Spirit uh, and, and the promise to you and I, men being filled with the Spirit. But Luke, because he writes about Christ the man, his genealogy goes back to Adam. And he starts there, the humanity and the way Christ interacted with humanity because he had put on humanity. But John's genealogy just says in the beginning because he's writing about the deity of Jesus Christ. And again, you think how difficult in some ways this was for him. The book of Genesis began the same way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John, as he writes his first epistle, says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which our eyes, with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. You think of John in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, seeing Christ and all his glory returning, the, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and on his thigh is written the word of God. And now John is telling us here, in the beginning was the word. And his gospel takes a vastly different direction than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are basically Galilean ministry. John is a Judean ministry, but he differs in this sense. There's no real genealogy given, but in the beginning. In John's gospel, there's no manger. There's no boyhood of Jesus. There's no baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. There's no temptation in the wilderness. There's no transfiguration. There's no Gethsemane. There are no scribes mentioned, no lepers mentioned, no publicans mentioned, no demoniacs mentioned. There are no parables. John is vastly different. 21 chapters. In 21 chapters, he uses the word father 121 times. In fact, chapter 14 mentions the word father more than all of the Old Testament combined. He uses the word father 121, to 121 times, my father 35 times. He uses the word believe 99 times in 21 chapters. You can see what's on his heart. He uses the world 79 times, Jews 71 times. The idea of knowing something, gnosis or 117 times. He uses the, the phrase abide 41 times, life 36 times, light 23 times, love 57 times in 21 chapters, and truth 66 times. And he's trying to take all of this and make it central to a personality that he calls the Word of God. And you have to understand, I think, from him, there's the difficulty there and the, the joy that he alone had. He's known Jesus since childhood. Jesus is his cousin. Him and James were cousins with Jesus. There are about 13 years difference in age. Jesus had gone to the temple with Mary and Joseph. Remember, they lost him. He was 12 years old. He was talking to the scribes and Pharisees. And he told Joseph and Mary, I have to be busy about my father's business. A year after that, when Jesus was 13, John, his cousin, was born to Salome, Mary's sister. Jesus is in Nazareth in the carpenter shop. 
The others are with a fishing family in Bethsaida by Capernaum, by the Sea of Galilee, not far apart. But understand that every journey to Jerusalem for the mandatory feast, every pilgrimage was something that was done with family and friends. And many times, no doubt, little John, long before Robin Hood, had traveled to Jerusalem with Yeshua, his older cousin. How many times, you know, our oldest and our youngest are 10 years apart. Joanna is 10 years older than her sister Hannah. And when Hannah was born, there were four kids in the house many times. I remember Joanna holding Hannah or helping mom with Hannah. How many times did Jesus hold little John when the family was together? What impressions did John have of his older cousin? He was zealous. He followed John the Baptist. He must have had very interesting perceptions. When Jesus began his public ministry at 30, John was somewhere 16, 17, maybe 15. And how many times maybe did Jesus hold John and think, you're going to be the last one. You're going to be on Patmos. You're going to put your quill to the page and tell everyone about me. You're going to look at my bride and say, little children, Love one another. He leaned on his cousin's breast at the Last Supper. On the cross, John tells us that Jesus said to Mary, Woman, behold thy son, and pointed to John. And to John he said, Behold thy mother. It was his cousin he entrusted. No wonder as John writes and we journey through, we hear him saying, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. You think how long their history was, back to childhood days. And now, John has this experience. His cousin's a carpenter, and he's following John the Baptist, who's a raving lunatic. Grasshopper legs in his beard and honey, you know. He's and he, and and chastising the political leaders, calling you, you're in adultery, you know, just woe unto you, scribes, scribes, woe unto you. And he just, he's, he's in the middle of that. And one day, here's his older cousin, and John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I wonder if John thought, I always knew there was something different about him. And he begins to follow his master, And he has to translate all of this into a theology that then he wants to communicate to us. No wonder so simple and so profound at the same time. In the beginning, he says, now that's before time, by the way, prior to time. Time has nothing to do with God. He was there, the word was before time. So time and the things that we're used to in human history, the time-space continuum and so forth, God's completely separate from that. He says, in the beginning, 
was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And he does something very interesting here. Again, it's so simple and so profound. He says, in the beginning, and the the way that's phrased is before, and he's going to tell us down in verse 3, all things were created by him. Nothing was created that was created without him. So he's telling us he is before creation. He pre-exists. He's the word. It says, in the beginning was the word. Then again it says, and the word was with God. And the word was, three times he uses the phrase, was there. All of those are in the imperfect tense, which means this. In the beginning, there was continually the word. It's imperfect. It speaks of continuation, continuousness. In the beginning, continually, there was the word continuing without beginning, without end. The word was continually, is continuing today with God. And the word continually is God. Or the Greek, can we turn around? God was continually the word. So he sets up Jesus and the Father, both of them deity, but he says the word was with God. He says it again in verse 2, the same was continually in the beginning. Again, with God, the pros, the way that's used in the language, it doesn't just mean to be with, but it means to be face to face. It means toward, when you're moving toward something. It means, it speaks then of communion because you're moving toward, you're face to face. It gives us a picture in the Trinity of the Father and the Son, both deity with the words face toward God and communing with him and that it was always that way. Isn't that remarkable? This fisherman trying to tell us the things the Holy Spirit has placed on his heart in the beginning was continually the Word. The Word was with God without end. The Word was God and continues to be that was. Continues. You know, it's, it's hard for us as we think about the Trinity. Mathematicians help us because... You know, it's it's a multiplication. If you do addition, one plus one plus one equals three. If you do multiplication, one times one times one equals one. So it's much more in that realm, but it multiplies no doubt beyond where we're able to, you know, quantify that in any particular way. And then he tells us in verse three, he says. All things were made by him, the word, which he's going to tell us became flesh, put on human skin. My cousin, who I realized was Jehovah, he says, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. All things there, the phrase panta, it means all things individually or separately. 
everything individual, every single minute thing in its differences was made by him. And it speaks of individual creation. Look, you are an individual creation. You're here because Jesus took interest in you before you existed. He had said to Jeremiah, before you were born, I knew you. Before you conceived, I called you. Before, you know, and each one of us. It's interesting because Darwin speaks to us about the simple cell. That's because he had a simple brain. There is no such thing as a simple cell. In, in, in the nucleus of every cell, there are several billion bits of information on the molecular level. You break that down the atomic level. We can't even measure that. And Darwin was a racist. He said that the white race would ultimately overcome the Turks and the Africans and the other races. And Adolf Hitler took his Third Reich from Darwin. That's why everybody had a blonde hair and blue eyes. Don't believe Darwin. You're not here because you came from a monkey. You're here because Jesus Christ was involved in your conception and your birth. When, when the sperm hits the egg and that comes together, you have those two sets of chromosomes in one nucleus. That one cell then turns into two, those two turn into four, the four turn into eight, the eight turn into 16, 16 turn into 32, 32 turn into 64, and so forth. And the multiplication. They say if a baby kept growing at the same rate it grew for the first nine months, it would be as big as the moon in no time. The multiplication, what takes place there, but here's the mystery today. And there's a man in England, a researcher, his name's Rupert Sheldrake. He's a PhD, and he claims, well, there's something, the, the mystery of this is this. As all these cells divide, every one of them in their nucleus has the same information, exactly. But all of a sudden, certain cells decide to become bone cells. Certain cells decide to become brain cells. Certain cells decide to become heart cells and liver cells. They don't know why. Now scientists are talking about epigenetics. It's sitting above the genome. There's certain markers, and they think they turn on and off parts of the DNA. That might be why. Rupert Sheldrake in England said, no, there's, there's something called morphic resonance, that there's a resonance in, in existence that helps direct. Come on, Rupert. Jesus is the morphic resonance. He's the one that's involved in forming. And look, here's the, here's the genius of it. When, when your liver's going to form, before your liver forms, the blood vessels go to that area, and the nerves go there, and they are waiting for the liver to form inside of the blood supply and the nerve supply. Isn't evolution amazing? And the reason you're here is because your life is an individual, separate involvement from the Creator. And it's just, just on the cellular level, of course, 200 billion 
molecules in a, in, a, in a nucleus, the information. It's macro and micro is the same thing, you know. Uh, we measure our universe in light years, which they found out is not accurate, by the way, now that they know about black holes and gravity. Our sun, you know, 93 million miles away, there's a star called Antares in, in another galaxy. You could put 64 million of our suns inside of Antares. But in the constellation Hercules, there's a star that you could put 100 million Artares inside of that star. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, the, the, you know, we're not meant to, you know, quantify and understand all that. It says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the earth showeth forth his handiwork. Look around you. You want to see his handiwork? Look around. I know you're thinking, well, it was a little handier with me than he was with him. No. <laughs> you look around. And again, the mathematical equations to take you and I from drugs, from the world, from alcohol, from illness, from, for us all to be converging here today, that, that's miraculous. It's unimaginable. And John would say to us, I want to tell you about the word. I grew up as a kid. I looked at him. I listened to him. And at a point, I was stunned. Because it washed over me. He was the one that we had waited for. He was the word of God that had existed before creation. We've seen him. We've heard him. We've handled him. He is the word of life. He was in the beginning. He was with God. He was God. All things were made by him. There's nothing that's been made that has been made without him. Think of this apostle, this aged, aged man, trying to put these things to the page and in faith, letting the Holy Spirit guide him as to what he should put down. He's going to write. When the Holy Spirit comes, he tells us, by the way, more about the Holy Ghost and all the other Gospels combined. When he comes, he won't speak of himself, but he's going to take the things of me and he's going to show them unto you. John, at 90 years old, his mind is all sun sharp as a tack. And he's writing these things and remembering them like they happened yesterday. And God is giving him the, the, the simplest childlike vocabulary to bring them before us. But he writes in the profoundest structures and tenses that we see. At one point he has Jesus looking at the disciples and saying, but where I am you cannot come. And they're thinking, what are you talking about? You're standing right in front of us. You know, where I am, you can't. John does those things throughout incredibly. So my encouragement, probably twofold this morning, for those of you 
that are born again, your believers. Number one, little children. Love one another. I'm tired of the division. It's grieving. It's heartbreaking. It's not in keeping with who we are and the price that was paid for us. Little children love one another. Read this book. It's written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Constantly we should be coming again to that verdict. It should be renewed and renewed and renewed. If you're here today and you've never come to Christ, look, we want to make that invitation. As the musicians come, we'll sing a last song. Maybe you were religious your whole life. John had been, but he didn't know Jesus. Maybe, you know, you came through Christian denominations and you've never come to Christ. That's what we're talking about. We don't want you to accept Calvary Chapel or, you know, or a a pastor or a priest. You need to come to Jesus Christ, the eternal word of God who knew you from the foundation of the world, entered into your existence, put you together, and has an eternal purpose for you. But he's given you a free will to accept that or reject that. And you can make that decision this morning. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally, and look, all this insanity in the world, we're we're, we're looking at the one who, who came to pull us together, to talk to us about love, to talk to us about eternity, not this miserable temporary existence. Do you have that? What do you expect to happen when you take your last breath, when you fall off beyond life, what do you expect to what are you expecting at that point to to us he says i've gone to my father's house i've prepared a place for you and i've done that i'm going to come again and receive you to myself we have that as believers don't leave here without that this morning i'm going to ask the musicians to come would you guys stand we'll end in prayer and then as we worship i'm going to ask If there's anyone here who has never come to Jesus Christ, do it today. Get out of your seat in front of everybody. Yup. And walk down here. And by doing that, you're saying, you know what? Today I'm repenting. Metanoia, to change the mind. My life has been going away from God. I'm a train wreck. I get everybody else is fooled. I got my act together. But when I lay on my bed at night, I am empty and I am desperate. And I'm tired of trying to do it on my own. And I'm running on fumes. And if this is true, I want it. If he loves me, I want that. And as we sing, then I'm going to ask you to get out of your seat. If a friend came with you, they're going to say, come on, come on, I'll go with you. Come down. We want to pray with you. We want to give you a Bible, some literature to read. But you come. You come to the one who loves you. You come to the one who made you. You're a creator and your redeemer who stretched out his hands on a wooden cross and he bled his life into the ground so you can live he stepped in the line of fire he took the bullet he took your sentence in the electric chair he died for you you can know him today 
not church, not Calvary Chapel, Jesus. Let's pray, let's worship, and please, if he's drawing you, you come. If you brought an unsafe friend, say, come on, man, what's holding you up? Let's, let's, you know, let's go, get him down here. Let's pray. Father, I know you've overheard. We thank you for this book of John, Lord. We thank you that we believe we're going to be seeing so many of the things John wrote to us soon, Lord. And uh, we pray as the weeks and months, Lord, if we have that, that you would speak to our hearts, you would minister to us, Lord, that we would love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors, ourselves, Lord, that men would know we were your disciples by the love that we have one for another. Lord Jesus, in our private time alone with you, our, our love for you would deepen because your love for us becomes more apparent. Lord Jesus, we need revival and renewal in the age we're living in. Lord, get to our hearts in a new way through this gospel, this good news of John. And Lord Jesus, we believe we're praying according to your will. And we do pray in your name. Amen.